Thanks, Jake. Good evening. Good to see you. I hope you got some notes, and we're going to dive right in. Um, as you're opening your, well, Bibles to some verses that we're going to read, and I'll have them on the screen, and you're getting your notes. Let me mention that next Wednesday will be our last of this summer series. I'll also be doing that teaching, and we're going to look at eschatology, which means the last things, or the study of last things, and ethics. And I'm going to help you hopefully understand how your understanding or how you might perceive the end of the age, how that affects how you live now and what Christians should think of that. So I'm excited about that. A couple things I want to say before we dive into this outline. I want to answer three questions. What is an abortion? What about difficult cases? And then what does it mean to be pro-life in light of what has just happened in our nation? A few things, though, before we dive into these three questions. First, I just want to express pastoral sensitivity and compassion. I realize that a church our size, in fact, most churches of any decent size, have certainly include, have people in their membership that are born again, forgiven, washed in the blood of Jesus, Christians who are, who are on their way to eternity with Jesus, who have... Uh, had abortions in their past or participated in abortions. And I want you to know that the uh, accuser of the brethren is a liar. And he wants to discourage you or to make you feel somehow uh, relive some shame that the Lord has forgiven, has removed as far as the east is from the west. I want you to know that this church is a safe place where you are loved, you are forgiven, and you are not a second-class citizen in any way in the kingdom of God if you are in Christ. The second thing I want to say is that although we will touch a little bit on uh, being a Christian in this post-Roe Scotus world, uh, I'm certainly not a legal scholar by any stretch of the imagination, so this will not be so much an analysis of that and its implications, although I say, along with Jacob, and as we've said several times in the previous Sundays, praise God for that decision. We think it is a wonderful thing. Thirdly, I have a burden that we as a church, though, be formed not by cultural Uh, thought, not by uh, Twitter, not by news outlets, uh, not by friends, but by the Word of God. And so I want us to spend some time piecing together logic from the Scriptures and the implications that that should have for us. And then fourthly and finally, I am not so naive to think that there are many generations in this church, even in this room, Uh, There are people that have arrived at, I think, what is a scriptural and right view of this topic many years ago. There are people that are in formation of that, and there may be people in this room that may disagree with what I say tonight. And I want you to know, and especially I'm speaking to younger people, I want you to know that this church is a safe place for you to wrestle with questions and for you to ask questions and for you to bring up things that you hear that may be contradictory to what we say, things that even you are wrestling with, with, and you will not be shamed. This church is full of people who will listen to you, love you, and encourage you and help disciple you in the ways of the Lord. Certainly this pastoral staff will, and I'll be glad to answer any of your questions. But in particular, if you're a young person, we have a student pastor here who is very, very knowledgeable. And I'm just going to say sort of pridefully, if you were to take a swath of all the youth pastors in the churches in the United States, I would say that Tyler Kirkpatrick is in the upper 1% of those that are theologically astute and grounded in the Word of God. And so, you know, we don't have a guy that doesn't know what he's talking about, and he is a wonderful resource for you if you are a young person 
to ask and wrestle with questions that are safe to ask no matter where you may be on this issue, okay? Amen? I want you to know that. Question number one, what is an abortion? Well, we want to answer that question by deducing the answer from Scripture. And so I want us to read uh, rather quickly a few important verses. We've started off with this verse in the last couple Sunday or last couple Wednesdays. Let me read to you again Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man has been made in the image of the triune God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so just again, just to reiterate the point that God is the creator. We are the created. He is in complete control of the universe. And Tyler made a really good point last week when he was talking about sexual ethics and identity that we have this mandate. In a sense, we do create we're called to create, and certainly we create in procreation. That's what pregnancy is. But it is, it is a delegated, it's a given mandate. It's because we've been made in the image of God. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. And this is the definitive verse. We have, I think just this, if we just, this was the only verse that spoke of personhood prior to physical birth then this is, would be all the Bible that we need to make the point that I think we need to make about what an abortion is and what it means to be human. The psalmist says, verse 13, one, Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame, and my wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, listen to these words, intricately woven, that's a verb, somebody's doing the acting, God is doing the acting, he's doing the intricate weaving in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So although in order for life to happen, it takes a man and a woman to come together and for sperm to fertilize an egg and for conception to happen, there is a hidden hand of a sovereign God that is actually superintending that process and intimately involved in every conception and he is intricately weaving together, knitting together in every room, every person that has ever been conceived. Psalm 51 Verse 5, this is often a, a, a psalm that has other applications. It's a beautiful psalm of repentance. But David, in his repentance, says something about his personhood even before his birth, at his conception. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is already attributing his sin nature even at the point of conception. And then even before physical conception happens, listen to this, even before physical procreation happens in the womb, in the mind of God, personhood is established. Jeremiah 1.5, God speaking to the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So God knew Jeremiah before the act of conception. 
And then Luke chapter 1, verse 44, this is John the Baptist when his mother Elizabeth approaches Mary and she's pregnant with Jesus and these two baby cousins in the womb are reacting, one is reacting to the other. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. John the Baptist's mother talking to Mary. And then, I don't have this on your list, but let me add this to you because no uh, teaching from me would be complete if we didn't eventually find our way to Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, I'm kidding. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul, making the point about salvation, says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be the firstborn among many brothers. So the point is, is that even before you were created, you were foreknown for loved in the mind of God. So although personhood finds its its incarnational substance at the moment of conception in the womb, actually we can make a biblical argument that personhood even begins pre-creation in the, the, the mind and heart and mystery of our triune God. And so back to our timeline here, Scripture, I think, clearly speaks to the status of an unborn person as being a person. Now, what about scientific biological development reasons? I could spend some time talking to you more scientifically and biologically. And again, not only am I not a lawyer, I'm certainly not a doctor, uh, but uh, we could spend time just thinking about things that are readily accessible on the internet, about the development of a, uh, a child in the womb, even as early as several weeks after conception, having their heart beat. And, and scientists know that even after the moment of conception, in, in that tiny little human is everything molecularly and structurally that ultimately is needed to be a fully formed human being. But I don't want even to, as wonderful and powerful as those arguments are, I think the greater argument is the authority of the clear witness of what Scripture says about what it means to be a person, and it means to be formed in the womb, even before that, to be formed in the mind of God, but as we can express it in our existence, in the womb after conception. So, What's the difference between an unborn person and a born person? Think about this just logically. If life as we know it in the physical aspect begins at conception, if we're knit together by God in our mother's womb, if God is intricately involved in that process, then the only difference between an unborn person and a born person is location, size, dependence, and development. That's a good way to think about it. Location, an unborn person is just in the womb. It's smaller than a born person. It's maybe a little bit more at a stage of dependence on the mother and a little bit uh, younger in development. That's the only difference between an unborn person and a born person. So to answer our question, what is an abortion? Scripturally deducing from these clear, obvious truths about what it means God's activity personal activity in the creation of a human being, then what is an abortion? The answer to that question is that, and let me add parentheses here before that sentence, from conception, the unborn person is a, per- the unborn is a person made in the image of God. Therefore, abortion is the unjust killing or murder of a person person. 
And that is just the historic witness of the church because of the witness of scriptures through the ages. It has never not been that witness of the church because of the scriptures. So what are the implications of this? And this, I think, is really, really, really important. Every aspect of this discussion, any discussion about abortion, about this terrible, difficult issue, must flow from this truth. Anything that concedes, any position from a Christian that concedes even one iota of the personhood of the unborn from conception is to give the whole house away. And everything that I'm about to say and every legitimate argument for the protection of the unborn flows directly from that truth that a human is a human from the moment of conception and an unborn person is a person and that person, the only difference between that person is location, size, dependence, and development. And so all of the rights of a person outside of the womb must then necessarily apply to a person inside of the womb. If you don't if you don't build your doctrine, your theology, your understanding of personhood on that, you are building a house of cards. Nothing will stand. And so, another implication of that is just this, this faulty logic of this common phrase that we hear in our culture today, which is a terrible confusion, an obvious confusion of this obvious truth where we will hear people sometimes protesting in front of the Supreme Court or a crisis pregnancy center, and the chant is, my body, my choice. Now, on some level, I believe that every person should have some autonomy over their own body. I think, that I don't, I don't, I don't, I th- I think that's the case. I don't think that you should be able to force a person to do something against their will. But the issue is, remember, what are we, what are we flowing from? What's going on there? It's not, there are two bodies there. So the, the faulty logic of my body, my choice just doesn't stand up. And the, 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 the presupposition of what is going on inside the womb after conception, from that flows everything. And so the idea, the logic of my body, my choice, which I think is the anthem of this world's generation, uh, although they would not agree with anything I've said, I want you to understand just the, the, the flawed logic of that scripturally. And by the way, and I'm not saying this to be snarky, I am really not being, I, I, I'm, I hope you guys know, and especially those of you that have been part of this church for 17 years, have seen me grow as a pastor, I, I think I've become less snarky over the years. Terry Cole, would you agree that I've become just a little, a little bit? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm growing in, in, in maturity. I do not mean this to be snarky, but I do find it, I will say I do find it a bit sort of hypocritical uh, many of the same people that, uh, that are proponents of abortions on demand um, and they, they have this thought of my body, my choice are also the people that for the past couple of years have been m- shoving vaccines down our throat and saying that it's mandatory. Now, I am not anti-vaccine, but I'm just saying the logic of forcing 
a, a very new vaccine on a population and shaming people for not doing it, and then also advocating for my body, my choice. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a gap there. Do we, see, do we see the hypocrisy? And I'm not throwing meat at the, the red meat at the crowd to rile you up. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to poke some holes in the world's logic. So, an abortion is the killing. It's the murder. It's the murder. It's the taking of a human life. What about difficult cases? What about difficult cases? Rape, incest. Again, I, I want to... Man, I want to speak with compassion. Gospel-saturated compassion on this issue. And in order to have this conversation, we need to have a biblical understanding of justice. Justice in this world, by the laws of human courts, will never be complete and full and final. The civil justice that God has given pagan governments by virtue of Romans chapter 13 is an incomplete justice. I'm thankful for that incomplete and imperfect justice, but it is an imperfect justice. Full and final justice will not come until the day that the Lord makes all things right and new. Justice is mine. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we as Christians need to have a worldview where we realize that perfect justice, the perfect equalizing of all outcomes in this world is an unrealistic expectation. But because of, and this is building on a lot of what Robert talked about in the first session, because, and I commend that, that Sunday morning class to you where he will go deeper in this, but because of the shift that has happened in our, in our world and in our culture over the past decades, and the authority, the, 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 the sort of submission that we realize being the created to this world around us and the creator, now we have tricked ourselves, deceived ourselves into thinking that authority rests in me. We think that we can control all outcomes and we are enraged against a world where we cannot control outcomes and we demand justice and it's an imperfect justice. And here's the point I'm trying to make about justice. Listen to me carefully. As sympathetic and as heartbroken as we can be towards women who are violently sinned against in rape and incest, to, a, to abort a child conceived from rape is to impose justice not on the guilty, who is the perpetrator who did that act of violence, but on another innocent. Justice is not meted through that. Justice... Actually, what happens is another injustice actually is now compiled on top of the first injustice. But do you see, friends, let's admit that if you do not believe the first premise about the personhood of the conceived child in a womb, what I just said seems like an absolute abomination to the ethics of our culture. And friends, this is not to deny how terribly difficult these situations are. But to kill a child that has been conceived in the womb, 
not outside of God's mysterious providence and, sover- providence and sovereignty, but under it, is to perpetuate more injustice, not solve the injustice that happened to that poor woman. Let me just say this in conjunction with that. Um, I am all for stricter penalties for rape. I would be open, I think we should be open for a discussion for the death penalty for rape. And so you can't tell me, you can't hold this up as a, as a, as a, a kind of accusation against a pro-life movement, but also then be lenient in, in, on these, on, in, in uh, penalties for such heinous crimes. And let me also just say this, uh, not necessarily on the issue of rape, but just the idea of the culpability of the biological father. I'm not necessarily talking about rape. I'm talking about any situation where a young woman finds herself wanting or vulnerable to have an abortion. It sort of puzzles me that our national conversation spends very little time talking about the culpability and the responsibility of the biological father. We have the ability to test and find out who a father is. And if we have the legal means to find out who the father of a child is, we should not leave that young lady vulnerable and dangling in the system and everything up to her. Let's put all sorts of legal pressure. Let's make him just as culpable as her. And let's garnish his wages. Let's make him work for the state. You can't just do that to that girl and then get off scot-free. And so... (laughs) This, this accusation sometimes that Christians only care about pro-birth and they don't care about women, let's, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Let's reject that and let's put the full force of all of the common grace of the legal system on these deadbeat dads who are impregnating women and living like nothing with no consequences. That's wicked and anus. But the point back to the terrible and horrible case of rape and incest is that as horrible as that is, as heartbreaking as that is, it is not solved by murder. It's not solved by murder. And here, and here, here else what I would say. I, one other word I would say along that. And, I, and again, I, I just want to muster all the gospel cam- compassion I can. And I, and I want to admit my hypocrisy in this because... I often live like these 80 years are all that there is. And I often live contrary to the ethic that I'm about to espouse to you. Is that this mindset that we as humans have, this idolatry that we have, this idea that my life in these 80 years, anything that happens to me, anything, any sin, even a heinous sin committed against me, now is an absolute threat to my future and is to, is to completely disregard an understanding of the fall of this world, the suffering that we all have to face. And the fact is, is that humans were not made for an optimal 80 or 90 years on this earth. We were made for communion with God forever. And part of living in a fallen world, whether it is dealing with a horrible sin against you in this way, or whether it's dealing with the atrocities of all sorts of things we see through the centuries, is not compounding injustice with more injustice, but enduring this fallen world because we have a hope that is coming and it's not fully here. And unless you have that eternal mindset, unless we as Christians can present a better hope for a world 
other than a pain-free existence here, erasing things, erasing anything that hurts us, we will never have a gospel that heals the world. If we tell them that what it means to be a Christian is to be happy, successful, and enjoy this life here and now, we're lying to a world that will have to suffer the pain and consequences of a terrible world where little girls get raped and they are pregnant. Secondly, what about birth defects and severe abnormalities? What about those difficult cases? Well, friends, again, we're just playing creator here. We are trying to, this is a consequence of us moving the authority from the outside world, understanding that we live in a fallen world where our bodies are broken and fallen, and trying to control things. And, And really at its core, to have an abortion because of some severe disability or the possibility of some birth defect and I am not I am not unsympathetic to how difficult it is to raise a child with severe disabilities I understand I don't have, certainly haven't personally experienced that but I understand and I can I can I can understand how difficult that would be friends where does that logic lead us it is a darwinian logic it's a it's a it's a demonic logic to say that if a person isn't optimally healthy then let's consider ending their life. I mean, where's that spectrum? What, where, where, where is the, what type of birth defects or severe disabilities are acceptable to live with? And where, where's that sliding scale? And so that is a logic, quite frankly, it's a Darwinian logic. It's a survival of the fittest logic. It's, a, it's an anti-Christ logic. And then what about the health or life of the, the mother? Well, uh, this is often thrown up as kind of the, 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 the final one. Well, what about that? Well, uh, in an incredibly small number of cases, this applies to. In the case of an ectopic pregnancy, and I, again, I'm not a doctor, so if I'm wrong on this, uh, my wife can correct me, John Fott can correct me, and any other uh, doctors or nurses or medical people can correct me. But as I understand it, an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy in which the fertilized uh, embryo, a young human, is developing in the fallopian tube outside of the uterus, and that pregnancy is not viable. That, that, that child will not survive in that environment anyway. And that, that, that child being in the fallopian tube and not inside the uterus presents the possibility that that child will not survive in that context and it presents the opportunity of that fallopian tube rupturing, which could possibly cause the woman to die. And so to correct that in a situation where that child is not going to survive in that context to save the mother, I don't believe is abortion. That is saving one life, um, not at the expense of another, but we can talk more about that. that. That is a, 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 a nitty-gritty medical issue. But listen to this. C. Everett Koop, who is the Surgeon General of the United States, says that in 38 years as a pediatric surgeon, he was never aware of a single situation in which a free-born child's life had to be taken in order to save the life of the mother. He said the use of this argument to justify abortion in general is a smokescreen. And listen to this. This is said by Dr. Alan Guttmacher, who works, works for Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood, this abortion clinic. 
Dr. Alan Gutenmeier says, due to significant medical advances, the danger of pregnancy to the mother has decli- declined considerably since 1967. And he says, today it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia. And if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save life. And so what this doctor for Planned Parenthood is saying is that really this, this, this hypothetical situation oftentimes is just hypothetical. It's almost never necessary. But here's, here's, here's what I, I want to say about this. And this is from a, a, an organization called Abortion Facts. I want us to see behind the objections. This, okay, well, what about the life of the mother? What about, any of these, what about any of these questions? Rape and all these things. Listen to this. Whenever many abortion advocates bring up this question of rape, and I'm quoting here, they do so often disingenuously. The fact is, They think mothers should have the right to kill their unborn children no matter what the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy might be. They only ask about the 12-year-old girl forced to carry her father's baby scenario because they know they can't win the abortion debate on the merits. So they appeal to the emotion of these extremely hard and rare cases because it helps mask their true agenda, which is abortion on demand. Now, I'm not saying that applies to everybody that is pro-choice, but I do think that is the prevailing, I think that is, in the, for the large part, true of the pro-choice abortion lobby in, the, in our country, is they bring up these cases not because they, they are, are really thinking that that's the issue here, but because they just want to keep abortion legal because they want abortion to be legal on demand. And again, this just speaks to just the expressive individualism, the authority of self. We just want, we just want to do what we want to do. So what does it mean? Question number three, what does it mean to be pro-life? And then we'll open it up for some questions. First, a a few, a few encouragements. Don't let the world shame you or the church. What do I mean by this? I think a lot of this has been going on, especially since Roe v. Wade has been overturned. I sometimes uh, regrettably follow conversations and trending topics in the Christian world on Twitter. It never does me much spiritual good. I come away more informed, but angrier all the same. So I'm not sure if it's maybe I need counseling on that. But don't let the world shame you or the church. Some, a sentiment that I've heard a lot recently since this court case happened is that people are saying, critical of the church, and even people sometimes within the church are saying things like, well, Christians only care about pro-birth and they're not pro-life. What they're saying is, all you really care about is just this, this, this issue, because it's just what Christians care about, but you don't really care about the whole life of the mother. Well, that sounds like a provocative, like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, well, that's just categorically not true. I don't know that of any Christian. There's nobody that I know that would that would turn away a poor person or that wouldn't help and isn't involved in all sorts of things that are, they're trying to do good for their neighbor. Christians and churches are the primary people that are actually doing things to help the poor. Where, where do uh, uh, ministries for, 
feeding people, uh, valley rescue, uh, abortion, uh, pregnancy crisis. These are all Christian things. They're there not just to see a birth happen, but to care for a mother. Go by crisis pregnancy centers, sound choices, and see all of the ways they care for mothers after. This is just a red herring. Don't bow down. Don't be intimidated by the world just throwing this at you, saying Christians don't care about people throughout their whole life. All they care about is birth. That's just not true. Another thing I hear is where this shaming that happens from the world and sometimes even within the church where people say, well, if you are not personally adopting or fostering a child, then you have no right to say anything. You have no moral authority. Well, now, wait, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So let's take that same logic. So if I'm not personally parachuting into Ukraine, fighting for them, then I have no right to have an opinion and say that what Russia is doing is bad? I mean, come on, just think about the logic. We, friends, that worldly logic is putting a burden on people that no one can possibly bear. No one human being can be involved in every good work that needs to be done. Don't buy into that burden. Don't buy into that weight that the world, don't buy into that shame that the world wants to put on you. The gospel frees us from that weight. And just because you are not personally adopting a child or you are not personally fostering a child or you are not personally bringing an, uh, an unwed mother in crisis pregnancy into your home does not mean that you have no right to have a biblical stance on this. That is ridiculous logic. We don't apply that to any other crisis situation in the world. But we apply it to this issue. And I don't want you to be shamed by that. Secondly, I want, you to, I want us to be gracious towards Christians with different approaches and callings. There's a kind of an, a sort of intramural sort of discussion, maybe even debate that happens in Christians in our stream uh, between what are called abolitionists and incrementalists. What is the difference between the two? There are some Christians that, want, that have been lobbying against abortion and they just want to abolish abortion. They just will, they're just, they, and of course we all want to abolish abortion. We want no abortions, but they are not willing to budge on any less legislation that would, um, you know, uh, like either it's all or nothing basically. Whereas incrementalism is a perspective that is open to things like heartbeat bills, like you can't have an abortion after a heartbeat. An abolitionist Christian would say, no, I, I, I think that even these heartbeat bills that protect uh, an unborn baby after a heartbeat is wrong because it's conceding to the abortion of at least you know, children before there's a detectable heartbeat. Whereas the incrementalist lobbying Christian would say, yeah, I hate abortion too, but at least we're moving the ball down the field a little bit and at least we're reducing the number of abortions. We're incrementally reducing the number of abortions. My point is, is that Christians can have different perspectives on how to how to combat this social ill and still be gracious with one another. And then finally, here's an encouragement, is that let's remember that this is a spiritual battle, friends. Romans chapter 1, I think Tyler and Robert maybe have both referenced this verse. Romans chapter 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21 says that mankind became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They 
claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25 is the, is the description of our age. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the create, creature rather than the creator. So this whole idea, this fact that we can do what we want to do with something that God has created as a person is to worship ourselves rather than to submit ourselves to a creator. This is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 verse 12 where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And remember, when you're dealing with the world, and maybe you're dealing with a friend who is not a believer and who is very antagonistic towards everything that we have laid out tonight, remember what the Bible says about the mind that is not yet born again or is in the flesh. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there is a spiritual battle going on in the minds of the world. There are only two types of people in the world. The world, those who are in the world, and those who are in Christ. And we're not just dealing with people who disagree with us. We're dealing with people who are under the sway of the evil one. And then finally, consider how, consider how we, you, Together, us, can care for unborn and vulnerable children and families. Consider how you might help with a pregnancy crisis center. We have men in this church who volunteer security guards. We have people that give financially to it, who volunteer, who are trained to help mothers, who, are, uh, who, who, who help in all sorts of ways to counsel, to be there, to just love on. There's a thousand different things that can happen there. And if you want to know, go to Sound Choices and find out and ask, email them. Ask how you might help. I'm sure they can put you to work. Christians in our church are very involved in foster and adoption, but maybe that's an area where you can help. And again, this doesn't mean that you personally need to foster or adopt, but maybe you can be involved in some way. Maybe you can give respite care to a family that is fostering, or maybe you can help fund adoption. Adoption is ridiculously expensive in our legal system. Upwards of thousands of couples in this church have spent forty or fifty thousands of dollars to adopt just one child. Talk to Laura Pate, who oversees our foster and adoption care teams. And there are many ways that you can be involved in this. And then, number three, put, get your head on a swivel, all of us, and I say this to myself, and look for opportunities to minister to people in low-resourced communities. Because yes, there are people out there who are much more vulnerable to abortions than people in other communities because of a whole host of social problems. And so we should be people that have our heads on a swivel to look at just ways that we can be around young people in difficult situations, in difficult neighborhoods, and encourage them. We have an elder in this church who I think, he's, I think this relationship that he's in is part of the Big Brothers and Big Sisters organization. I'm not sure. But he befriends a young man that he's a kind of big brother to in this community program and meets with him, I don't know how often, but has been meeting with him regularly. And here's a man who would never otherwise meet up with this young kid and is just loving on him, encouraging him. And the, the things that God can do in that interaction can help this young man grow into a person who will be much less vulnerable to find himself in a situation. Now, that's not a perfect, but what if a bunch of Christians just had their head on a swivel and did, just stopped wringing their hands and getting angry at the news and just said, I can do a little bit. And if a millions and millions of Christians each did just a little bit, this problem would begin to transform in our society. 
And it wouldn't just be a political hot-button issue. It would actually be a ministry of mercy amongst thousands of churches and millions of Christians across our land, and God would be glorified, and lives would be and are being saved. And so sometimes we look at a problem that is so huge and magnificent, and we say, oh, gosh, what can I do? Watch the news and get angry. That's not the answer. Just a little thing. Be, be just get involved in some of these ways and think, pray, act. All of us. I say that to myself. And uh, bring glory to our world and do good to our city, as the prophet says. Okay, let me pause there. Questions, comments. And when I say comments, I don't mean stump speeches from the floor. I just mean comments. Comments. Anybody? Ben? Are you walking to the microphone? You might have to move that up a little bit. You're kind of a tall drink of water now. Sorry. I don't know how to adjust. You can, yeah. Um, I guess kind of a two-part question. Does the church have an official stance on abolition and criminalization? Mm -hmm. And then um, I was pretty disappointed with uh, what happened in Louisiana when uh, the ERLC came out and opposed their bill for abolition in Louisiana, mm -hmm. along with, I think, about 70 pro-life groups. Um, and really kind of caused that thing to, to die. Um, and, and it seemed like it really was a good effort to try to kind of move, not just move the needle, but establish, hey, you know, yeah. this is, we recognize that life begins at conception, and this bill would have um, enacted that in Louisiana. So I don't yeah. know if you speak to that or just... Yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot of details about that, but just on the surface, I remember feeling a little disappointed about that too. So I would just say, I, I hear you. But to your previous question, um, I, uh, no, I, I, we don't have it. I think that's a matter of prudence. I mean, that's, I don't think that's a matter where the church can bind a Christian's conscience on. Um, I think that arguments can be made on both sides. There's a good article that I can share with you from a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary named Denny Burke, who kind of argues for both cases and says how, you know, those are, there's room for both in the Christian world. So... Yeah, Thanks. good question. But I mean, I think we're, I would say, Ben, the situation we face now, speaking of, of post-Roe v. Wade, where we can enact an abolitionist common law, Romans 13 law of the land, I would, of course I think we should want that. Absolutely. But that's not going to necessarily happen in every state, and so that's where maybe incrementalist work might still be good in some states. But in a place where... Louisiana, like where it was on the table, I, w I wish I wish it would have happened. Yeah, right. Does that um, maybe as a follow-on? Does that uh, play into Crosspoint's affiliation with uh, SBC? No, I mean that the uh, I don't think it does because the the SBC. It's just a, the ERLC does not speak for every Baptist church. There's not a, it's not a denominational authority over us. It's just a it's just a lobbying arm of the convention. And so we're not beholden to their, I mean, we can be disappointed in them. We can not give money to them. We can give money to them. I, I, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't feel, I don't feel, uh, I'm thankful for a lot of the work they do, but I don't feel like everything that they do needs to be a direct extension of, of us at all. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 ERLC is, stands for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It is, an, it is an, a lobbying organization, a political lobbying organization of the Southern Baptist Convention. So it's funded by the cooperative program that we talked about a couple weeks ago, 
and they do primarily lobbying work in Washington, D.C. and state um, uh, governments. And they've done a lot of good things, and some things they've done I've scratched my head at. Kind of like, like myself. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Ben. Those are good questions. How's hey. it going, sir? Hey, Nate. Can I share a quick anecdote yeah. with my experience with the abortion topic, yeah. followed by a question? Yeah. The anecdote will explain the question. Yeah. Uh, so, hi, everybody. My name's Nate from South Texas. Um, so, I've been a Christian for 13 months and nine days. Wow. When I came here to... Praise yeah, praise God, honestly. Yeah, this anecdote might scare a few people. Um, so, uh, when I came here, I met Lane, Buddy Lane, who's sitting over there. And uh, he knew I was a new Christian. And so when Roe v. Wade got overturned, Wade, uh, Lane asked me, he was like, hey, man, uh, you're a new Christian. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts were on abortion. And so I shared this following anecdote. I said, prior to becoming a Christian, mm-hmm. um, I was essentially pro-abortion. And the, here was the reason why. The reason why is because I wanted to have sex without any consequence, mm. okay? Um, and so despite, you know, and I was pretty politically minded at the time, I'm not anymore, but I, you know, I aligned with conservative, uh, you know, policy making, with the exception of the abortion topic because of that sinful motivation. I just, I was like, yeah, conservative all the way, except abortion, I wanna have sex freely. Um, so anyway, here's my question. Oh, but I followed that by telling Lane, now, obviously, I'm against abortion, and I'm even against Plan B, contraceptives, uh, pregnancy pills, whatever they're called, condoms, and even, quote-unquote, pulling out when you're having sex, right? Uh, because my motivation for supporting abortion at the time was just to not get pregnant, and I... That was the same motivation with those other mm-hmm. uses of those other tools. No. No. So I, my question is, like, for the non-believer in today's age who simply wants to have the abortion option mm-hmm. so they don't suffer, well, it's not a consequence, but in their eyes, they don't suffer the consequence of having a baby. Mm-hmm. My question is, like, what's the Christian stance on everything prior to abortion? Condoms, pulling out, contraceptives, etc.? Uh, well, boy, that's a, that's a whole other topic. We, okay. I did a teaching on that um, uh, a couple years ago that's on our website on um, reproductive ethics. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just would kind of push you to that. Sure. But let me say this. I think you're bringing up a good point, Nate. Nate expressed his pre-conversion ethic, which is just an expression of everything that Robert was talking about, which is the, the, the spirit of this age, is that I, w- the world wants to do what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. And whether it is the sexual ethics that, Ro- that Tyler talked about last week or this issue, it is all a fruit of the God, the lowercase false God of self that says, I will do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. This is all connected to the false god of self. It's always existed. It's, it's existed since the garden. We're just seeing in our age a more public screech and scream of this from the flesh, I think. 
And so what should we do with people that, that they, 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 need, they need maybe abortion apologetics and they may need LGBT Christian ethics apologetics, but the, my point about being a spiritual battle is the only thing that can transform a heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ that hits a human heart so as you might argue some of these issues with your friends who disagree with you. Don't just argue the personhood of the unborn. Argue the lordship, the need of sinners to trust in Jesus. Because without that, they really won't be able to see the personhood of the unborn very likely. I'm not saying that there aren't any unbelievers that don't understand the personhood of the unborn, but they need something greater. They need their sins forgiven. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Amen. Nate's going to Texas, back to Texas, where he will be at Fort Bliss, right? Fort Hood. Fort Hood. Okay. Um, it's on the website. Um, it's on. It's on. I'm thinking. I'm. I'm looking at you. I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm not it's a going. Midweek fellowship. Midweek. And it's uh, reproductive ethics. Reproductive ethics. So mid- keyword search it on the website. You should find it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 But yes. If you email me, I can help you find it. Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I. My name is Cassandra. I am Cassandra. very much pro-life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had a question about IVF, in vitro mm-hmm. fertilization, yeah. because mm. if you are not able to conceive naturally mm-hmm. and you believe that you are supposed to be fruitful and multiply the earth, that's a calling, obviously, that God has given us. Mm-hmm. What is, what do you think is the biblical view of IVF? Because like you said with, um, yeah. you were talking about the ectopic pregnancy, mm-hmm. that life, you know, even the ones, like if you can't conceive naturally, that life wouldn't even exist, mm-hmm. but you could possibly make a new one. So my question is, are all those embryos, you know, that you create during IVF, is that basically wrong, even though you would make a life out of it? Um, uh, that's a great question. You said Cassandra? Yeah. Uh, um, that's a great question, Cassandra. Uh, that actually, I talked about that in that talk, reproductive rights, but I do want to address that. And I want to say that um, there's a couple issues in reproductive, in, in IVF. Um, I want to say that um, there are two different streams, and I want to be gracious here within Christian thought, that says that the ability to intervention and help to fertilize an egg and create a conceived conception with the help of IVF is a wonderful grace of God. That's one thought. The other line of thinking is that, look, we're, we're kind of dabbling too, this is too invasive and so we should just let up to the sovereignty of God. Infertility is not the worst thing in the world. And we just, we can adopt just, just this is the providence of God. Um, clearly Christians are going to have different views on that. Um, but I would say that if you have that first view, that in vitro fertilization is part of the common grace of medicine, that then within that, one of the techniques of in vitro fertilization is to fertilize as many eggs as you can and see how many of them actually stick to the wall, just knowing that a bunch of them might perish or to free some. And I think that is an untenable option for a Christian to do. Now, I realize that, that the, the, the objection is, is that increases the costs to, of, of in vitro fertilization to do single egg or double egg uh, fertilization. Um, rather than a bunch at a time, and it, lo- it, it increases the cost and lowers the chance of pregnancy. But I think if you are going to do that, and that's a big discussion that I addressed, if a Christian does that, if they freeze or if they 
are willing to discard any fertilized eggs and just choose the healthiest ones, um, I think that is um, unjustifiable biblically. Thank you. And, and, and I would say, they would say, well, I'm going to freeze and, you know, come circle back five years from now. Well, again, I just thought, I'm thinking dignity. I mean, if that's a human, I wouldn't freeze my seven-year-old. You know, and I'm, no, I'm not being silly. I mean, just, I just don't, I don't think we should freeze human beings. Mm. I just think that's, I think I just, so, you know. That's great. Thank that, you. That's a great question, Cassandra. A great question. Yeah. Kirby, Whitlock. Hey, Brad. All right, so this is an issue I don't hear discussed much, but I think it's very clear that in the case of a disability being detected that the pregnancy needs to be continued. But what about once born, like having the severe disabilities and just like there's going to be multiple treatments, apparatuses, everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there ethics that are discussed about not providing those? Yeah, I mean, that's an issue of medical ethics that I think is a little beyond our talk. I mean, I would want to think more deeply about that because I think a doctor, maybe John Fott, could help me answer that question. Just, I think that would have to do with viability, um, all of that kind of stuff. And I just, quite frankly, on the, on the spot, I just, if I get into that, I, I might mess it up. John, would you say anything to that? Come to the microphone, John. So many different different caveats. So, like, if you had a baby that was anencephalic, so they don't have a brain, uh -huh. you know, they're not going to survive if you just you could put them on a ventilator, you know, yeah. and it's probably survive a long time, but they don't they don't have a brain. So, I, I guess what you're asking is, should you do, go through everything to to keep something alive as long, a baby as alive as yeah. long as you can. And I would say the answer is, what would you do with an adult that was brain dead? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'd treat them just like you would treat anybody else. Yeah. If, they're, if, if their brain is not gonna function enough to keep them breathing on their own and doing everything on their own, I would say, then don't do it. If, if, if their brain does not work and, and you, um, you know, you would have to, like, tube feed them and everything else. Um, you know, that's a very, very hard decision that you'd have to sit down and talk with a doctor and try to get as good an yeah. idea of what their life is going to be yep. like and are they ever going to have brain function. Mm -hmm. No one ever really knows for certain unless they're like anencephaly or something. Mm -hmm. But um, that would be the way I would go is just yeah. sitting down and talking to yeah. the family. Um, about that. While I'm up here, though, let yep, me just absolutely. make a quick comment about um, ectopic pregnancies mm -hmm. and that kind oh, of thing. Thank you. Save me from yeah. any mistakes. I yeah. Made. So um, the thing to think about with like an ectopic pregnancy really is the placenta. And most women in here, I'm assuming all women in here, have seen a placenta when it comes out. It's about this big around, weighs I about have. I've seen it. a pound or two. <laughs> Yeah, and it's the part of the baby you Four throw times. away, right? <laughs> and you're glad to do it. But the, the thing about an ectopic pregnancy that you have to understand is that a placenta has to grow. That big old pizza-looking thing has to be there to keep a baby alive when it's in the womb. And it must grow. And, if it's, and God created a womb to be a place where it could grow. Yeah. And it really cannot grow anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Not not to where it's going to get as big as it needs to get to take care of a baby. So that's why the pregnancy is not viable. Because 
the placenta simply cannot get big enough to take care of that baby. But what it can do is it grows like a cancer wherever mm. it implants. Mm. It just starts growing mm. through things. And a fallopian tube is very, very thin. It will grow all the way through it and rupture it. And it also causes blood vessels to, to grow wherever it is. It mm -hmm. stimulates blood vessel growth. So if a, if a fallopian tube ruptures like that, it's got tons of blood flow to mm -hmm. it by the time it ruptures. Mm -hmm. And they just bleed. A woman can bleed to death, and I've almost lost a patient that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's when we say non-viable. It's because that big old pizza is only going to grow in one place, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's yeah. the bottom line. So you would say then that an ectopic pregnancy, ending that pregnancy is a legitimate medical procedure? Yeah, it, you, okay. it, it's either that or uh, it's going to end that probably could, worse for the yeah. mom, yeah. if not death. Yeah. Something, so that's something not, bad is going yeah. to so happen, that's and not the, the baby will not survive. Right. That's no not what. taking a life, that's saving yeah. a life in that yeah. instance. The baby's yeah. not going to live because yeah. the placenta cannot grow big yeah. enough. Gotcha. Yeah. Good. Thanks, John. Yeah. That was really helpful. Any other? Okay, let's, 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 it's 845, or 745, so let me, let, me, let me pray, and then anybody else that wants to hang around and ask John questions, you're welcome to. <laughs> no, I'll stick around. I'll stick around. Um, Lord, thank you. Lord, Lord, you are the author of life. You are. What is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, you're so kind. You created us in your image. You were not lonely. You, were, you didn't need us. You were perfect, triune, complete. But as an overflow of your glory, you created us. Lord, humble us. Lord, humble us as we think about this and humble us as we interact with friends and the culture around us, or even Christian friends and who might be confused about this. Give us mercy and compassion, but give us spines too. Make us courageous. Let us wield the sword of your word gently but boldly. And help us be a better witness. Let us resist the shame of our culture. Make this a church that is committed to helping people that are in terrible situations. And Lord, if there's anything that I've said tonight that wasn't quite on point, let those words fall to the ground. But anything that I've said that's true and from your word, let it stick fast to our hearts. And may it be used to make us more like Christ in this dark age. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.